Hello, and welcome to Biota. I'm Phil Gibson. And I'm Sarah Sanders. In this episode, we talk to two scientists who will tell us about their work. Although they are not working together in the same lab, they are both trying to answer many of the same important questions about the occurrence and prevalence of certain diseases in human populations. What we hope you learn from this episode is how scientists are combining established techniques with new genetic tools to answer important questions about diseases and disease outbreaks. Our first guest is a microbiologist at the University of Oklahoma. My name is Cara DeLeon. I'm an assistant professor of microbiology at the University of Oklahoma. We'll start by having her briefly describe what the scientists do when they prepare and analyze the specimens they study in her lab. So we get these samples in from all over the state of Oklahoma that are really dirty, but we're really interested in the genetic material that's in them. And so the first step in our process is to go ahead and try to get rid of all of these other things that are in our samples and really just isolate the genetic material. So the DNA and RNA from the sample is really what we're most interested in. So we're interested in a lot of different pathogens in our samples. And so uh, we can use two different types of key PCR reactions. One is just a general PCR that will tell us whether or not the pathogen is present or absent. But we also will use quantitative PCR methods so that we can quantify how much of that organism, whether it be a virus or a bacterium, is present in that sample that we get in. What Dr. DeLeon will next describe is how once the DNA and RNA have been extracted from a sample, they use different metagenomic techniques to look for genetic signatures of specific pathogens. One of the tools they use is something called a panel. You can think of a panel as a type of test to identify pathogens researchers want to study. We have different panels that we use in the lab. Um, one of them is specific for SARS-CoV-2, so the virus that causes COVID-19. But the other one is a general respiratory panel. So we're looking for any type of respiratory viruses or bacteria that might be in our samples. And so for those, we get the whole genome back. So not only does it tell us who's there, how much is there, but it will also tell us what variants might be present in our samples. You might be wondering what the samples are that Dr. DeLeon keeps referring to. Well, we'll let her tell you. Ah, it's wastewater the influent from different wastewater treatment plants from around the state. So this can be anything from what you flush down the toilet to what goes down the drain of your shower and all of the interesting things that come with that. At this point, you might be wondering why anyone would want to study wastewater. We'll let Dr. DeLeon explain why there are very good reasons to study it. So wastewater is a great way to try to study an entire population all at once. So it will tell us how much of this potential pathogen is in that population without having us know who it is or whether or not they've gone to a clinic to be tested for this. And so it gives us that anonymity that is really helpful, but it also lets us test up to hundreds of thousands of people all at the same time. And that's really important for uh, pathogens that we don't do a lot of deep testing for. For example, if you go to a clinic and you have a respiratory infection, um, they may or might, may not test you for flu, 
uh, but the chances of them testing you for RSVU, which is uh, you know going around right now as well, is very low. And so they just assume that you have a viral infection and send you home. What we can do is we can tell how much of that virus is circulating in the population and whether or not we have a potential outbreak going on. And the same thing happens with SARS-CoV-2, which is really important because now that we've moved to at-home testing mostly for our diagnosis, it means that our cases are underreported. And so we don't understand as well from the case data how well or how much of uh, the virus is circulating in that population. We wanted to be clear about this point because it seemed kind of strange when we heard it. So we asked Dr. DeLeon if we heard her right that DNA from respiratory diseases like COVID or RSV, things that affect the lungs, they can show up in human waste? It does. So anything that passes through your feces or urine or even things that you might shed a lot of off of your skin when you bathe can be detected in wastewater. Yes, that's right. The topic we will figuratively dive into for this episode is wastewater. It might not sound like the most glamorous topic to study, but we can learn a lot about diseases in a population from studying wastewater. In this episode, we explore how scientists search for genetic markers and other chemical evidence that can indicate the presence of pathogens in wastewater. With that information, public health officials can detect the presence of pathogens and monitor for changes in pathogen levels that indicate trends in how much of a disease is in a population. So, the question Sarah and I wanted to get answers to is, how do scientists monitor wastewater? To be effective, it couldn't be a surveillance system with each lab conducting its own analyses. This is something that clearly takes an organized effort to implement a pathogen surveillance system at a national scale. And that's where our next guest comes into this episode. My name is Amy Kirby, uh, and I'm the program lead for the National Wastewater Surveillance System at CDC. Dr. Kirby's job is directly involved with coordinating different wastewater monitoring and surveillance programs so epidemiologists and public health officials can know what is happening with different diseases. Before the pandemic, I hadn't heard much about wastewater testing, but it seemed like it got a lot of attention during the COVID pandemic. That got us wondering whether this was something new or if wastewater monitoring has been around for a while. So we've actually been using wastewater testing uh, for disease surveillance for decades, since the 60s. Um, and it was originally started for polio surveillance. Um, so one of the things that uh, people often don't recognize about polio is the classic presentation that we think about with paralysis and people in iron lungs and um, all of those horrible outcomes is actually really rare. Only about 1% of infections lead to that very severe manifestation. Um, but the other 99% of those infections can continue to transmit. And so we want to be able to detect those 99% of cases as well. Um, and wastewater surveillance turns out to be a really good way to do that because the polio virus is shed in feces and so we can detect it in wastewater. Um, and so they've been using it for a long time to identify communities where polio virus is circulating, but maybe um, there aren't any of those severe cases because it's at a low level. Um, and then they um, use that information to go in and provide vaccines um, in those communities to make sure that they're protected um, from circulation in those severe infections. 
Because COVID is caused by a different virus than polio, we next wondered if the methods of monitoring and detecting COVID in wastewater were the same or different from those used to monitor polio and other pathogens. Well, in theory, it's the same. So we're using the same idea, right, to look for um, infections that may not be clinically severe, may not show up in, in our clinical surveillance in doctor's offices and hospitals so that we can implement better interventions, um, whether it's testing for COVID or vaccination for polio, um, whatever that may be. Um, so at that level, they're the same. However, when you get into the details, they're quite different. So for polio, um, they use a culture-based method, and they're just looking for is there polio in this community or not. So it's a presence-absence test. Um, so yes, no. Um, for COVID and the way we're doing wastewater surveillance for other pathogens now, um, we're using quantitative PCR. Um, so that we can measure not just is SARS-CoV-2 present, you know, the virus that causes COVID, is it present in wastewater, but how much of it is there and how are those concentrations changing over time? Um, so are cases increasing, are they decreasing, and how fast are they changing? Um, unfortunately, if we just did presence absence, it would not be a very useful approach because all of our wastewater has detectable SARS-CoV-2 in it now. Um, and so we really needed to go that further step to look at uh, being used uh, in the system. Testing wastewater in a single sewer system is one thing, but coordinating collection and monitoring across the country is a much more complex undertaking. So we asked Dr. Kirby how they implemented this effort to study entire wastewater systems. Yeah, that... Um, implementation has really been the hardest part of developing uh, the National Wastewater Surveillance System, which we call NEWS, um, so you'll hear me refer to it that way, um, because we had to really work closely with our utility partners. Because um, you want to take a wastewater sample, they're the ones that you're going to need to um, collaborate with. And so uh, at CDC, we work with state and local health departments and then help them engage um, with the utilities and the communities that they want to um, include in their wastewater surveillance networks. And utility operators then collect wastewater samples as they're coming into treatment plants. Um, so it represents the whole service area. Um, they then send that sample to a laboratory. Um, and right now we have a real mix of laboratories. So there's a few utilities that can do this testing themselves. So they do it on site. Um, we have a lot of academic partners that are doing testing. Um, there's a few commercial uh, laboratories that can do this testing, uh, and some of our public health labs do it. So the sample gets sent to the laboratory for testing, and then once they have the resulting data, that gets uploaded to CDC for analysis and reporting back uh, to the public health departments and out to the Now that we have a general idea of what they're doing, we next wanted to know more about the process of collecting their samples. And who's going out and doing all that fun sampling? as well as different types of difficulties they encounter. Yeah, so there's a few ways to do this. Um, one of the things that uh, you really have to keep in mind is that wastewater is not a constant um, mix. So there's variation over the course of a day. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of human contribution in the morning when most people are waking up. Um, again, in the evening before they go to bed, 
Um, there can be other things that impact the sort of daily variation in wastewater. Um, and so what we want to do is kind of um, moderate that variation and mitigate it as much as we can. So the best way to collect samples is with a, a piece of equipment called a composite auto sampler. So essentially what it does is it drops a, a little sampling tube down into the wastewater stream and takes small samples, you know, 15 mils, something like that, um, every 15 or 20 minutes for 24 hours. Um, and so it's kind of averaging the flow over that whole 24-hour period, and then you measure that. So that's the best way. Um, you can also do what's called a grab sample, which is pretty literally just sticking a bottle in the flow and grabbing that. Um, so you can think of that as like a snapshot of what's going on. Uh, they work, but the data is noisier because you're not really moderating out those peaks and valleys and flow. Um, and then another method that people have used um, particularly successfully in small communities and at facilities is what's called a passive sampler. So you stick some kind of absorbent material um, on the end of uh, a fishing line, basically, and drop it down in the sewer system. Um, let it sit in the wastewater flow for an hour, 24 hours, whatever your time frame is, and then pull it back up and um, elute the pathogens out of that uh, material uh, to see what's been absorbed over that time. It's been really interesting to see that develop because it came from something called a Moore swab, which is used for water sampling. And a Moore swab started off as just cheesecloth that was tied in kind of a bundle and thrown in the river. And that worked. Um, and so now there's, you know, fancier Moore swabs. You can do them with better material. Um, of course, at the peak of the pandemic, we were having a lot of supply chain issues. And so people couldn't get um, a lot of the materials they wanted, particularly scientific supply materials consistently. And so they had to get creative. Um, and one of the things that a lot of our groups have found work really well and are easy to get is tampons. Um, and so, you know, those were always available. Um, and so you just go to the store and buy some tampons, tie the string to a longer fishing line and chunk it in the, in the wastewater and it works really well. In larger urban areas, there will obviously be a larger flow of wastewater than in a small town. That made us wonder how they adjust sampling based on population size and other ways that they take population size variation into account. So we take the same sample size regardless of what um, size population you're surveying, um, but we do want to account for that. And so we do it a couple of ways. Um, actually, there's three ways that you would account for, for population size. So one is measuring the flow um, through there as a proxy for you know, what volume of wastewater you're sampling. And so you take the concentration and divide it by the flow um, in millions of gallons per day. Um, so that's flow normalized, and that's what most of us are using because uh, utilities measure flow for all kinds of other operational needs, and so it's an easy data point to get. Um, another way to do it is to measure a human fecal marker, so something... Uh, it's usually some sort of microbial marker that is specific to humans. So you're just looking at how much human fecal contribution is in the sample versus all of the other things that are in wastewater, like rainwater, stormwater, industrial input, you know, washing machines, all of that kind of stuff goes in there too. Um, and so usually what they're looking at is some kind of, you know, virus or bacterial marker 
Um, the one that's become most common lately is pepper mild model virus, which we uh, get from eating peppers. <laughs> um, and it's very common in human stool, and it's a really good way to measure how much human input there is. Um, and so you can do that um, to uh, normalize for how much input. And then another thing that some of our largest systems are doing, so those systems that serve, you know, a million people or more, is instead of just sampling at the treatment plant, they'll also sample within the sewer network. So essentially dividing their big service area into smaller, several smaller service areas so that they can get better resolution. By dividing a city's sewage system into smaller and smaller service areas, they could get a more fine-grained look at the presence of COVID and different variants. Their ability to do this even allowed microbiologists working with Dr. DeLeon to track a particular COVID variant to a specific location. Here, we'll let her explain further. I think, you know, the thing that's really close to my heart um, is that we find these what we call cryptic lineages of SARS-CoV-2. So cryptic lineages are variants that we've never seen a case for, but we can see the mutations within the wastewater. And so for a really long time, we thought maybe it was an animal that was having COVID that would then contribute to this. But our collaborators at the University of Missouri and the University of Wisconsin have tracked down one of these lineages to a single toilet in Wisconsin. So we feel pretty comfortable that this is a person And our hypothesis is that it's probably a long COVID case. So this person has had COVID for a really long time. It's accumulated all of these mutations. And they are shedding so much virus that we can detect that person within all of the wastewater of 100,000 people. Um, But what they did is they tracked it from manhole to manhole and got all the way up to a company. And the company was interested and they only had two toilets. And so they allowed them to test the two toilets, and they narrowed it down to one of those toilets. They don't know who used the toilet. It's a, it's a company, so it's many, many people and potentially uh, patrons of that company. But it is really interesting that they could find it in that one toilet. But it's not just the size of the human population that matters. Sampling procedures will also depend on the particular pathogen. So after adjusting for population size, We wondered how frequently they need to sample. Can they use the same sampling frequency for all pathogens, or do different pathogens require different sampling schedules? Yeah, for COVID, we recommend sampling twice a week. Uh, That seems to be the sweet spot between getting good enough time resolution to be able to detect trends uh, in a timely way and being efficient with resources. Um, We do have some sites that are sampling daily, and, I mean, that's great data for scientists to dig into. You can really understand trends and how things relate, um, but it's not necessary in order for public health action. So most of our sites are doing twice a week. Um, As we think about moving to other pathogens, um, that may not be the same timing. Uh, The reason we want to do COVID twice a week is because it's a very fast-moving Uh, outbreak. And so we need to be able to get data that moves as quickly as the transmission of the disease. Um, For other things, that's going to be too fast. So one of the things that we'll be expanding to next year uh, is antibiotic resistance. Um, And that's much more, you know, there you're talking about timeframes for change. 
on the order of months, if not years or longer. Um, and so there we'll probably do testing. We haven't totally decided every other week, maybe even monthly, um, but certainly not twice a week. Now that we know how samples are collected, we wanted to learn how they analyze the data they collect from the wastewater so that public health officials can use it. Sure. So, unfortunately, we cannot take wastewater data and get to a case rate, um, which would that be, you know, percent of the population infected. Um, There are models that do that calculation. So, essentially, you know, looking at how much an individual person would shed and would contribute to the wastewater and accounting for decay in the wastewater system, you know, how those models work. But the problem is we don't have good data around those parameters. So how much an individual person sheds when they're infected, how does vaccination change that, um, what kind of decay happens in wastewater. And so as a result, those models trying to get back to case rate uh, are very inaccurate and uncertain. (laughs) And the results end up being so broad as to be really not useful for public health um, until we do a different kind of analysis. So the first step is that same normalization that I was talking about with flow. So um, we actually do population and flow. So um, it's the concentration that you measure uh, divided by the flow rate um, multiplied by the population. So sort of a measure of uh, how much is there per person uh, in that uh, community. And then once we have that number, that's what we consider sort of our raw input into our metrics, um, we use uh, two primary metrics. So the first one is percent change. So um, looking over a period of 15 days, um, how much are the concentrations changing in that site? Um, And that tells us, you know, roughly trends. Are they going up? Are they going down? And how fast are they changing? Um, And then we have a different metric that we call the percentiles metric, which is a relative level. Um, So you look at the current measure and compare it to all of the measures uh, historically from that same site um, and ask essentially what quintile does this most recent uh, result fall into? Is it in the top 20% of concentrations we've ever detected here, the bottom 20% or somewhere in between? And so between those two measures, you can see, you know, where are we headed or where are we now? Are we high? Are we low? And where are we headed? Are we going up or down? Um, and that's really what our public health um, implementers are using We do have one other metric uh, that we generate, which is detection proportion. So over that same 15-day period, um, what percentage of samples collected had any detection at all? Um, For COVID, this is not a particularly interesting metric right now because almost all of our samples are positive, so everybody is at 100%. However, when we get back to uh, a low case rate, which I am (laughs) hopeful we will get back to a low incidence period with COVID, um, that is going to be the first metric where you see reemergence in your community. So when you go from everything being negative to getting that first positive. Um, and so that's really the one you're going to watch for these uh, rare pathogens. We wanted to go a little bit further and ask whether wastewater monitoring can be used to detect new variants that evolve in populations. Yeah, so we do two different measures. Um, one of them is just total SARS-CoV-2 quantification Um, trends overall in cases. And so that's what we've been talking about so far. We also do um, generally once a week, although some of our sites do twice a week, C 
sequencing. And so we use a tiled amplicon approach. It's the exact same um, sequencing approach that's used for clinical samples, so when they do testing of cases, um, to determine variants. The catch with wastewater um, is that we know that a lot of the virus that we're measuring in wastewater and that's present in wastewater is decaying and damaged and the genomes are fragmented. So we, while we may be able to detect, for example, all of the different mutations associated with something like Omicron, a variant like Omicron, we can't say with any certainty that they are all present on a single genome. It could be that it's a mix of different variants, each carrying some subset of the mutations. So what we do um, is we look for mutations that are unique to a variant, um, and it has only appeared to date in, you know, specific variants. And we weight those um, as, you know, greater evidence that that particular variant is present in wastewater. Um, and we also look at uh, how often, um, you know, read frequency to try and make some assumptions about how the different uh, reads go together. Um, and then we can use that to predict uh, or to not predict, but um, to uh try and determine what variants are present in those communities. Um, but we can't predict future variants, and it's really because of that problem of not being able to really know how the pieces of the genome are linked. Um, and so we're really relying on whatever that has been seen in clinical and then asking, you know, where else are those variants appearing? What other communities are seeing them, and how are they changing in proportion uh, to each other? That gives us a good idea of what is being done with polio and SARS-CoV-2. The thing we started wondering about next is what about the future? Emerging diseases is a topic that has gotten a lot of attention since the pandemic started. We wanted to know how the researchers at the CDC are preparing for and anticipating the next disease, or if that's even possible. Sure. So the national system that CDC runs, um, we just last month implemented monkeypox testing. Um, and hopefully we will be confirming that cases are in fact going down and that the outbreak is over and we're not missing anything. Um, but we will continue that monitoring to make sure that is indeed the case. Um, so we'll be, uh, that is already uh, ongoing. Um, we're working with the polio response to determine uh, where, what communities we should be doing polio wastewater surveillance in. Um, the country overall is very highly vaccinated for polio. So it doesn't make sense to do national polio surveillance here. Um, but it does make sense to do polio surveillance in communities where vaccination rates are low. Um, and so we're looking to identify those. Um, those are the things that are ongoing right now. Um, we're in the process of developing what we're calling our first news panel. So uh, expanding to a multi-pathogen system, which we sort of got forced to do earlier than we intended to with monkeypox and polio. Um, but our plan uh, is to expand uh, formally to the news panel starting in January uh, of 2023. Um, and that panel will include, obviously, SARS-CoV-2 will be on there. Um, but it will also include antibiotic resistance genes. Um, in this case, it's the ones that are really clinically relevant and that are the most concerning to us when we see them in clinical cases. So carbapenemases, extended spectrum beta-lactamases, and colistin resistance. 
Um, we are looking for foodborne infections like E. coli, salmonella, and norovirus. Uh, we'll be adding influenza A and B, um, adenovirus 40 and 41, um, largely because uh, adenovirus 41 was implicated uh, in an increase in acute pediatric hepatitis uh, in the past year. And so we want to be able to monitor that um, to, to really confirm that relationship. Um, and then uh, an emerging fungal pathogen called Candida auris. Um, that's thankfully very rare, um, but very, very severe, um, generally associated with hospital infections and has a very high mortality rate. Um, and so we'll be looking for that as well. That wraps up this episode on wastewater surveillance for diseases. We want to thank Dr. Cara DeLeon from the University of Oklahoma and Dr. Amy Kirby from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention for their time and the information they shared. What we learned from them is that wastewater monitoring is an important tool in fighting disease and protecting public health. Scientists can collect samples of wastewater and use different laboratory techniques to identify the pathogens present in the sample. Many of the techniques that they use to identify viruses and bacteria look for genetic evidence that is unique to each pathogen. The data they collect from analyses of wastewater can then be used to estimate different values ranging from simple presence or absence of a pathogen to calculations that estimate the levels of a disease in a population and how it's changing over time. By developing new techniques and modifying existing ones, scientists are learning how to extract even more information from wastewater than they previously had been able to do. Continued wastewater monitoring and development of new ways to study it are going to be increasingly important tools to protect populations from known diseases. Monitoring evidence of pathogens in wastewater can be used as a kind of early warning system to detect levels of diseases in a population and whether they are rising or falling. With more work and discoveries, this is exactly something that you, our listeners, can be a part of in the future. If you are interested in this kind of work, you can find more information at www.cdc.gov fellowships index.html. I think that about wraps things up. Before we go, I want to thank our guests, Dr. DeLeon and Dr. Kirby, and thank my co-host, Sarah Sanders, for her help with the interviews and writing this episode. So, as always happens at this time, thanks for listening. Have a great day and take very good care of your genetic material. Biota is a production of Under the Juniper Studios. All opinions expressed are those of the author alone. Thank you. Thank you.